Would you please open up your Bibles to the Gospel, uh, sorry, the Epistle of John, John uh, chapter 3. And as we get in, back into our study on love, that is, uh, true lovers, true believers uh, will love one another. 1 John chapter 3, really beginning at verse, uh, verse 10 and picking up from there. Well, before we get started in our study, let's uh, go to our Lord in, in prayer. Uh, would you please join me in prayer? Our Lord, our God, we, uh, we do just praise you, we exalt you, and we do invite you to speak to us through your word, Lord, that you would accomplish the purposes that you um, desire to accomplish through your word and in our lives. Lord God, we just thank you for giving us your word, the word that feeds us, the word that guides us, the word that is a light unto our path uh, to show us how we should live in this dark world. Lord God, help us to understand the, the primacy and importance of love for the brethren, love for other uh, believers in a new and fresh way this morning. And uh, just ask that you apply this and help us to apply it at a deeper level. Help us, Lord, to excel still more in our love for one another. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going to be returning to our study of the fact that true believers will love one another. And we see this in 1 John 3, beginning at verse 10 and, and really running through verse 18. And again, this is a truth that John has, has uh, his, I should say, the, his teachings about love is something we have seen before and will see yet again uh, as he returns to this. But each time he does, he adds more to it. This morning, he is, he is uh, really building on an understanding of why it is that true believers can love one another. And a lot of this flows out of what he said at the end of verse 10 in chapter 3, and that is uh, that, that the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And so verses 11 to 18 really fill out, fill out and help us understand why it is that John can say such a, such a strong statement like this. Beloved, understand that in Matthew 24, Jesus, um, we are given an account where Jesus is teaching his disciples regarding the future, regarding the future time when he would return to earth. And I would just like to read those just for a moment. It's kind of a way of introduction for us this morning on the primacy and importance of, of love. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, in verse 9. Then they will deliver you over to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, Most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Beloved, understand that the one who endures to the end is the one who is the true child of God, whose love will not grow cold because he has the love of God within him, and especially his love for the brethren will not grow cold. This vital connection between true righteousness and love is what undergirds the truths that John is teaching us in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. In these verses, John provides us understanding of, of why it is that true children, the true children of God will, as a pattern of life, love the brethren. Remember, we're not talking about perfected love, but the, the pattern of that love. And in these verses, John will help us understand why that is true. And before we get any further, let's just go ahead and read 1 John 3. Uh, pick up at verse 10 and read through verse 18. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And may the Lord bless his word in our hearts this morning. We're going to be looking at the four reasons why true believers can be conclusively identified by their love for one another. We looked at the first two of these last week, so I'll just review them ever so briefly. The first reason is that consistent absence of love for the children of God is is really impossible because um, someone who has truly come to know Lord Jesus Christ uh, will want to obey him. And John specifically mentions the, the, the message, which the message which they have heard from the beginning, that is that command to love. And understand, beloved, that we understand, uh, understand the connection between righteousness and love that John is making. Understand what type of love we're talking about. This is agape love. This is a love that is a sacrificial love. It's not a fleshly or a feeling-based love. It is a love that does what is good for the benefit of the other without any thought or, or uh, of any benefit that the person that you might receive by giving that type of love. And we also need to understand who John is talking about when he talks about loving our brother, that he's not talking about our our brother as far as a brother in humanity. He's not talking about uh, a neighbor. He is talking about a spiritual sibling, someone who you would consider to be a spiritual brother or sister in Christ, specifically Christians. That's who he's talking about when he says to love your brother. And this is grounded in Christ's command to that his disciples would love one another as, they have, as he has loved them. So the second reason why we can confidently say true believers will love each other is that the children of the evil one consistently hate the righteousness of the children of God. Here you're looking at the, the character of, and, and behavior of those who are identified with the evil one. So understand that, that in the uh, beginning of verse 12, John uses Cain, as a negative example, not of love, it's not that Cain's love was deficient, it's that there was no love. He uses Cain as an example of someone who did not love his brother. And, and John tells us that, that Cain was of the evil one. And why was he of the evil one? But because he slew his brother. In other words, we can identify Cain's spiritual state by his behavior. If he had truly been worshiping God, if he was a worshiper of the one true God in, in faith, he would have loved his brother. But he was not. And he slew his brother. Remember that word, uh, slew, is, is a very graphic, uh, a graphic term, speaking of uh, homicide and murder, a very violent death uh, on his part. And remember, too, why it is that... that he slayed him, and that was because he hated his brother's righteousness. Uh, John brings that out. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now remember, it, the Bible isn't saying that his, brothers, uh, that his brother was without sin. But his brother's deeds were righteous, lived out in faith. Not perfected, not sinless, but he listened to God's instructions and worshipped God how God instructed him. Cain did not do that. So Cain wanted to worship God in his own way. And God rejected him for that. And this is God's judgment upon, uh, God's sentence on Cain is, is very clear here. Because he says that Cain was of the evil one. And there's that connection between um, uh, Cain as a murderer being identified as Satan. Because Satan is identified as what? The father of lies, but he's also described as the one who is a murderer from the beginning. So John is making that very clear distinction. 
So these first two reasons, I'll just summarize them again. The first reason is that consistent absence of love for the, for the children of God is impossible for someone who truly has come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you are saved, you are going to obey the Lord, and the Lord commands you to love um, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and that will happen. Not perfectly, but it's going to be the pattern of your life. If that's not the pattern of your life, then you are not truly saved. The second reason is it has to do with, with um, hatred. And it is that hatred that, that comes out time and time and time again out of unbelievers. That they hate God's righteousness, and so they're going to hate anyone that reminds them of God's righteousness. They're going to hate anyone that reminds them that they live as sinners condemned under God's judgment. And so they will do everything they can to, to put down um, and to um, destroy, even at times, those who, rem- who stand for God's righteousness, who live a righteous life, and uh, who represent Christ here on earth. Jesus said that that would come. They, w- they would kill. They would murder at times. We haven't experienced much of that in our country uh, which we can be very thankful for, but it doesn't mean the future won't turn that way because things could change very, very quickly for us and the Constitution will not protect you, only God can. So that's where our faith has to be uh, in, our faith has to reside in God. But know that that hatred is there. The hatred of God, it runs deep in our country and, it, and you see it uh, sprout up like volcanoes at certain incidences, but it's there. And that, that will be turned against God, and it will be turned against everyone who loves God and lives for Him. So just be prepared for it. John says, thir- verse 13, don't be surprised. In other words, he, the, the believers there is written in a way that suggests that they were already surprised. They, they were bewildered by this. And that's a good way to think about it is stop being bewildered. When someone hates you for no reason at all, except for the name of Christ, don't be surprised by that. You know, we can understand when uh, someone hates us when we do something against them. You know, if we trip them or make fun of them, put them down, um, you know, in some way insult them. We can understand that kind of hatred. But the kind of hatred that, that John's talking about is the kind that has, has no starting point in your life. You didn't do anything, but it's the fact that you are living righteously that people will hate you. The world will hate you. That doesn't mean everybody hates you to the, to the fullest extent possible. Scriptures aren't saying that. But by and large, if you live righteously, you're going to experience some suffering and some ridicule. And, and I wonder sometimes if the reason we don't experience more ridicule is because we just don't. We choose to remain quiet when we need to be speaking up. I'm not saying we need to go look for martyrdom. Uh, that would be wrong. Uh, what, what is right, though, is for us to be ambassadors of God's light. And if we are, if we are being that, then the world will generally uh, hate us because they hate God's righteousness. Let's, let's move on to the third reason why we can confidently say that true believers will love each other. And why we can identify true believers by their love for the brethren. Their love for the church, beloved, is another way we can say this. Not a a love for the building. We're not talking about, when I say church, I just want to be clear, we're not talking about the building. We're talking about the people, the church of God. True believers will love the church. Now, look at what John says uh, in beginning of verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Let's just stop there a moment. Understand, beloved, that you can know if you have eternal life. There are some people today, some of their um, some of the denominations that are quite large and some teachings that are quite popular that tell you you cannot know with any certainty whether or not you are saved. They say it's impossible for you to know the answer to such a profoundly spiritual question. Or they base it in how you live, and knowing that you don't live perfectly, they say, well, since you don't live perfectly, therefore there's no real assurance that you're actually saved. But look at what John says in verse 14. What what John says, and more importantly what the Word of God says, is that it is possible to know with certainty whether you have eternal life or not. We know and notice John's not saying you know, he's saying we know. He's including himself, uh, really identifying with the believers that he is writing to. We know that we have passed out of death into life. 
So we know. This is, a, this is a perfect active verb which speaks of having gained knowledge in the past that guides us into the present. This is something that we know. We, we know it, we've known it from the time of the Lord saving us and redeeming us. We can know. And here, here John is, is helping them to understand that, that um, he is going to be teaching us a, a universal truth here. He, he is going to be teaching. He says, we know that we have passed out of death, out of death into life it is, a, is a principle that it would call a universal principle. It's always true. And it's, it's always, because it's always true, we can use this as a test of faith. And in fact, that's one of the things that John intends it to be used for is that this, this truth, this statement, uh, forms a test of faith that applies to all of us, everyone, everyone. And we need to understand, beloved, that the world will not acknowledge this or even agree with this. Right? This is not written, this statement isn't written to, to unbelievers. Just the fact that they don't agree with it doesn't mean that it is true. They're not going to agree with it. They're going to define love the way that they want to define love which is accepting them as they is, affirming everything in their life, even the sinful aspects of their lives. But know, beloved, that the love that we're called to is agape love. It's a sacrificial love. And it is those who have that type of love for one another that identify themselves as the Lord's children. Look at how John refers to eternal life. He, he doesn't just say in verse 14, we know that we have eternal life because we love the brethren. What does he say? He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. The word passed out uh, is, a, is a Greek word that, that refers to a, a movement from one realm to another. One lexicon explains that the usual meaning of this word is, and I quote, to move from one place to another, especially to change one's dwelling. Uh, although it can also be used to, in speaking and writing to move on to a new subject or attain from one state to another. John uses the word in this way in, in, in John uh, 13, verse 1. When speaking of Jesus' impending return to heaven, there he writes... Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his, hour would, that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice that world, that knowing his hour had come, he would depart out of the world. It's the same word that John uses in our text that we're studying today in 1 John 3, 14. Passed out. Uh, passed out of death, that he, his time has come, he would depart out of the world. So in Jesus' case, he's talking about a physical movement. Jesus would ascend from earth to heaven. It was time for him to go to the Father. Uh, obviously, it was spoken before his crucifixion, but the time of his crucifixion and death and resurrection was soon impending, so he could say that, that he would soon depart out of this world. So this term is used to speak of physical movement from one place uh, to another, yet it can also be used to speak metaphorically of movement, uh, to speak of spiritual movement. Jesus uses the word this way in John chapter 5, verse 24, in the Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 24. There Jesus states, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and listen, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Notice that last phrase, passed out of death into life. There is a spiritual movement from the realm of death into the realm of life for all those who believe in Jesus Christ. That was, that was Jesus' way of, of defining what eternal life was in, in that passage. So it's, it shouldn't surprise us that John uses that same that the term in, in a similar fashion in 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And what's interesting here that's somewhat lost in, in the English is John saying, we know that we have passed out of the death into the life. Uh, in the Greek, it uses a definite article, and that's important because it's pointing us to something very specific, not just life in general, not just death in general, but the death and the life, referring to the spiritual death that we're born in and the life that Christ brings. That's what he's talking about. John is referring to a spiritual movement 
from the realm of death, the realm of sin, you might say, into the realm of life and salvation and righteousness. That transfer occurs at the moment of salvation. Paul uses similar language in, in Colossians. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There the contrast is between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of his beloved Son. But we could also say it's, it's the realm of darkness contrasted with the realm of light. Jesus transfers us from the realm of darkness into the realm of light. In John's description of the, of tr- the true brethren, uh, having passed out of death into life implies that they were at one point in that realm of death, but are now in the realm of light. And, it, and we just need to be, state very clearly that, that since the entrance of sin through Adam and Eve, all children, every single one of us, are born in the realm of darkness. None of us are born in the realm of light. The day of your birth was a day of joy and celebration as your parents celebrated your birth. Uh, everybody who's experienced that as a parent knows the, the joys that uh, are brought to a, a mother and father as they see a, a little one born, and they're so full of, of life and vitality. And yet we must understand that those little ones, as cute and adorable and as joy, as much joy as they bring to our hearts, that they are born in spiritual darkness. They are born in, in the realm of darkness. And it was that darkness that Jesus pierced it was that darkness to which he came. And we read about this in, in the Gospel of John uh, chapter 1. I'll just read that to you. You can listen. John chapter 1, being at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." Beloved, understand what a wonderful thing that God has done for all those who truly believe in him and transferring them out of this realm of darkness into the realm of light. And I want to make one other statement about this, and that is, that is this. The way that John writes this and the verb that he's using, it shows that it's a one-time transfer. It's a one-time action. You know, if you look at it from an accounting point of view, this is, this is something that Jesus does one time. It is not something that he does once and then realizes, oh yeah, I made a mistake. That person really doesn't believe in me. They just kind of faked me out and then have to transfer them back to the realm of darkness. And then you go back to the kingdom of light. It's just nonsense. When scripture uses this language, it talks about a one-time transfer. Whether you're talking about Paul and Colossians or John uh, here in his epistle. It is a one-time movement. When you pass out of death into life uh, by faith in Jesus Christ, it's a, it's a one-time deal. It's a one-time action that God does. If Jesus transfers you into the kingdom of his light, then that's where you are forever. Your sin, no matter how grievous, cannot move you out of that state. He will deal with you. He will discipline you. He will love you as his child and he will rescue you. But he will never cast you out and he will never move you back to the kingdom of darkness. So back to our text. John says we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? How can we know that we have eternal life, John? Please tell us. He says because we love their brethren. It's, it's really quite simple. Because we love the brethren. We know that we have eternal life and have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Remember, we're not talking about a perfected love. It's a pattern of love. And remember the high standard that we're talking about. We're not talking about cheap love. This isn't the kind of love, you know, where you just kind of like... you, you, you um, um, I think the term is pay it forward. You know, you're in line at the drive-thru and you buy the, the, the coffee or the meal for the person behind you. That, that's great. 
it's encouraging when someone does that for you, but realize even the world does that. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. We're talking about the sacrificial love. Uh, you know, to talk about that kind of love means that you have five bucks for your coffee and you only have five bucks and you buy someone's coffee and it means you don't get coffee. Right? Very few of us live in that state where, where giving something to somebody else means us not getting the same thing. Right? So, but that's, that's the kind of love that John is talking about. It, this, this is a, a love that is it's not motivated by what we will receive, by those warm feelings we receive when we buy someone else coffee. This, this is, uh, or something more, much more profound. This, this love is not motivated by attractiveness to the other person. As one commentator explains, this, this agape love denotes not natural affection stimulated by the loveliness of the one loved, but a high ethical love, which, is consistently, which consistently seeks the true welfare of those loved. Seeks the true welfare of those loved. So get the logic of what John is saying. He's essentially saying, much like he did with righteousness and talking about love, he says, your conduct reveals your character. Your conduct reveals your character. You love the brethren because you've been moved into the kingdom of light. So you love others who are in that kingdom of light. It's not that somehow we we learned first how to love Christians or love brothers or sisters, and and then later God transferred us to the kingdom of light. No, no way. That would be work salvation, which is totally against the, the teachings of Scripture. God saves us when we are in the realm of darkness, transfers us to the realm of light, and because of that transfer, because of the change of heart, because of the change of character, we now love the brethren. The the logic that John is using is similar to uh, really just physical progeny, and the fact that a son or a daughter is is like her uh, her, his uh, father or mother. That's what John is saying. So if you are of God, the one who is love, then you will love the brethren. If you are of the evil one, the one who has been a murderer from the beginning, then you will not love the brethren. You will, in fact, hate the brethren. Understand that John's not speaking of a single moment of hatred any more than he is speaking of a single moment of love or a single failure to love. It's a pattern. He's speaking... Uh, not of perfected love any more than he is speaking of perfected hatred. You don't have to hate someone uh, to the utmost in order to fall into the category of hating your brother. He is speaking, again, of the pattern or direction of your life. If the pattern of your life is that you do not love the brethren, then you should have no assurance of salvation. In fact, the picture is worse than that. Look with me, if you will, at how John progresses this argument. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. He who does not love abides in death. So it's using those realms again, the picture of these realms. There's the realm of darkness, the realm of death, the realm of light, light, and the realm of life. He says, you still abide in death. If someone doesn't love their brother, he does not love, abides in death. Abides in death. The abide here is is the same term Jesus uses when he commands us to abide in him. It means remain in him. Uh, The person who doesn't love abides and remains in death. It's not that they were once alive and then then fell uh, into death. It's that they were always dead and they remain in that realm, that realm of death. You could say these are the true walking dead. And Paul gives us a glimpse of what it is like to be the walking dead. He does this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I'll just read that for you, for our edification. He says there, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we... Two, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's an apt description of the walking dead. And, and Paul reminds the Christians in Ephesus, as he does us, that that's who we were when we were in the realm of death. That's how we lived. And so John says anyone 
uh, he who does not love abides in death, abides in this realm. But, but now watch, beloved, what he does next. He moves the argument just a little bit further. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. John wants you to see that, that the lack of love is, is not just a neutral area. It is actually the realm of hatred. Because he moves his argument from not loving at the end of verse 14 to hatred at the beginning of verse 15. You know, we, we normally reserve the word hatred for like a, a separate level of anger and irritation. We have this in our, in our just in the way that we live and culturally as we, as we use the terms love and hate. We generally, you know, really love something and then there's this big neutral area and then we really hate something. And those are, we reserve those for really strong like emotions. But, but the Bible, uh, particularly here in verse in, in the epistle of John, looks at it much differently. There's a realm of love and a realm of hate, and everybody is in one or the other. You either love the brethren or you hate the brethren. You can't be neutral to the brethren. And that's what John is saying. There's just not this neutral area. And, and so John builds on his argument, he says, in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So now John's helping us to see the logical connection to the one who was the murderer from the beginning. He's saying everyone who, who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, now the, word, the Greek word murderer uh, is a translation of a word that's only used two times in the New Testament. So if you do a, a uh, search for the word murderer um, on your phone or your Bible app or in, a, in a, some kind of uh, concordance, you'll see the word murder appears multiple times in the New Testament. But that's because there are different Greek words. So if you use like a Strong's concordance, it'll help you see the, the different number means that it's a different Greek word. So the word murder that is used here is only used two times in the New Testament. Well, I'm giving you one. I'm telling you that it's right here. Where might, given the context, where might you guess the other one is used. And speaking of the evil one, Jesus uses this very same word for Satan. He does that in John eight forty four, where Jesus tells the religious leaders who hated him, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand the truth because there is no truth in him. So, John here is is tying the the person's character as a murderer to the one who was a murderer from the beginning. In a very subtle way, he ties again the fact that that your character is revealed by your conduct. He's not saying that everybody who hates his brother is going to be an actual murderer. Not at all. What, What John is doing here is, is really uh, developing the idea that, that, that uh, in a sense, that Jesus used when Jesus talked about lust. He talked about adultery, I should say. And Jesus said, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you looked upon anybody uh, with lust, you've committed adultery with them in their heart. So John is using the same type of analogy here to move the thought forward from hate to murder. Right? So you could say, John, if you were here, could say, you've heard it said you shall not murder another person. But I tell you that if you've hated anybody, that you have murdered them in your heart. Right? Piercing truth. Piercing truth. But, but that's what John is, is doing. He's trying to make it crystal clear on the, the, that your uh, conduct reveals your character. And it's not that, not that the conduct is just slightly bad. It's really bad. It identifies someone who is in that realm of darkness. John says in verse 15, he says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So he's just making it very clear that the person who does not love indeed hates and the one who hates is guilty of murder. And you know that no murderer, nobody who is characterized as a murderer, has eternal life in him. This, that, that phrase um, that he gives us at the end of verse 15, you know, sorry, verse 16, 
verse 15. No murderer, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's called an axiomatic truth. An axiomatic truth is a truth that, that, is, just, that is just plainly obvious. And, and you know this. Even the world recognizes this. That's why we say it's axiomatic. It's not, this judgment is not just limited to Christians who have the word of God. When someone goes and shoots 20 people, do you think anybody questions whether that person is in heaven or hell? There's no question about it. Even, even the Advent atheist, you know, will not, will just say, oh, that person's got to go to hell. He's so evil. There's got to be some kind of retribution and judgment for having killed so many people. The world recognizes this. They want to deny that there's a God. At the same time, when, when atrocities like this happen, their hearts cry out for justice, a justice that can't be um, meted out or can't be administered here on earth. It has to be administered in the eternal life. And that's what John is wanting us to understand. So he's, he's developing that thought. Remember that John just isn't implicating those who commit actual murder. He, he has linked a lack of love with hatred, hatred with murder. And if you hate someone, you are likened to be their murderer. In the same way that Jesus says, if you look upon someone with lust, you have committed adultery with them in the heart. But there's good news in There's a good news in this. If you're at the place in your life where you look at your life and you say the love of the brethren is just not there. I I don't really love the church. And I don't really love Christians. Oh, there's some that I like because of natural affection or affinity. Or we like to talk about the things, uh, same things. But there's not really that true spiritual affinity as being one in Christ. If that is the state, do not despair. There is good news in the gospel. So on the heels of, of describing the spiritually dead in Ephesians 2, chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, Paul declares the good news that God is in the business of rescuing people from the realm of darkness. He's in the business of rescuing people out of this realm of darkness. So Jesus entered, entered the world of death in order to bring sinners into the realm, uh, out of the realm of death into the realm of life and light. And we can read about this in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just read it there for reference. Because it is so important that we understand that God doesn't expect us to reform ourselves in order to, uh, before coming into the realm of light, which we can't even do on our own anyway. But He is the one that does the work in our lives to prepare us. So after talking about being in this realm of death... Paul begins in verse 4 of chapter 2 to say this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may, may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Beloved, understand that the one who does not love abides in death, but doesn't have to end that way. It doesn't have to be that way eternally. The one who abides in death can repent of their sins, have faith in Christ, and be transferred out of the realm of death into the realm of light. And to those persons this morning, we just plead for you to repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust Him that you will be saved. Beloved, understand, this is, these things are why John can so confidently say that true believers will love each other. They'll love each other. And we've just, as we just looked at, the third reason was that consistent love for the children of God reveals someone who has eternal life. And the negative side of that is someone who doesn't love who, the brethren, who hates uh, the brethren, uh, is also revealed for what they are as a child of the evil one. Now let's look at the fourth reason together, which we see beginning in verse 16. And that is this. The fourth reason why uh, consistent love for the children of God reveals someone 
to be uh, a true believer, reveals someone who has eternal life, is that consistent love for the children of God requires Christ-like sacrifice, which the children of the evil one are unwilling or unable to do. Consistent love for the children of God requires Christ-like sacrifice, which the children of the evil one are unwilling and unable to do. Notice who John turns to next for an example. He's been talking about Cain, but notice who he talks about here without mentioning specifically his name. He says, we know love by this, that he laid his life down for us. He's talking about the Savior, obviously. But it's interesting, he, in, the, in the text here, in verse 16, we know love by this, that he, the word he there is a special pronoun that John only uses to refer to Jesus Christ in this epistle. So it very clearly is pointing us to Christ. We know love by this, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We, we only know what agape love is, because of his example. Without his example, we, really, we wouldn't know what that love is at all. It's through his example of love that we truly perceive, recognize, and, and come to know and understand what agape love is. This isn't something that we intuitively know on our own. As D. Edmund Hybert uh, has helpfully noted, John is speaking about, I quote, a knowledge of love that has been gained through diligent contemplation of the significance of that historical event of Jesus' life and death. Having come to know this love through our past encounter with it, we now know the true nature of this love. In Christ's self-sacrifice, we possess the supreme manifestation of the love. The kind of love John is talking about is not native to the human heart. It is the love. It is his love. We know it because he has defined it. And later on in this epistle, he's going to later say that God is love as he moves that yet one step further in his teachings. Beloved, agape love isn't something that we can muster up on our own. If you can do it on your own, it's not agape love. Agape love, sacrificial love, requires the Holy Spirit. That's why one of the fruits of the Spirit is love. You, you want to know how to love each other sacrificially? It's reliance upon the Holy Spirit to help you do the things that aren't natural to you. He will help you. Okay? The Holy Spirit impelled Jesus, and Jesus willingly laid his life down. Look at, look at what the text says. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. This text specifically um, tells us that Jesus was, was not a victim. Jesus wasn't in, just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus was in the exact place at the exact time that he purposed. He deliberately and voluntarily laid down his life for us. He saw the need and lived his life to meet the need. Yes, in obedience to the Father. Yes, in dependency on the Spirit's empowerment. All right? But he did this intentionally and voluntarily. He did this. He laid his life down by coming and be, humbling himself to become a man. He, he did it even more on the cross. He said he, he took on the, the form of not only he humbled himself being the form of man, but he, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, a humiliating death. He did that for us. And he did it even in small ways in how he lived. He, he served us. He came for us. He laid his life down. And we're... We are so thankful that he paid that full, having paid the full uh, debt, that certificate of death, having, having nailed that to the cross, taken our certificate of death and nailed it to the cross, he rose again in newness of life. Beloved, we're told we're, all of this humility of Christ and how he sacrificed is, is uh, vividly told to us in Philippians 2, 1 to 8. We won't take time to read it, but I want you to reference there. Philippians 2, 1 to 8. And, and it's because Jesus laid his life down for us, and he lives again, that we are exhorted to follow his example. Look, look where John says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He moves from the example of Christ to a reminder of our moral obligation. The word ought speaks of a, really a, a continual or a continuing moral obligation. Right? So, 
We are morally obligated to love each other because Christ has commanded us to love each other. Now, now remember, beloved, when when we talk about to lay down our lives for the brethren, we're not speaking about laying our life down the same way Jesus did. He atoned for our sins in laying his life down. That's done. That's finished. That's completed. So when we lay our lives down for another, even to the extreme of giving our life for another, it's not for the sake of atonement. It is for the sake of just sacrificially living and exalting Christ in, in your life by how you love one another. John, uh, in John 15, Jesus says this, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. It's the greatest love. And, and by, such, by such logic, we can say it's the greatest love that God has ever shown us and will ever show us. There are many people in this world who are angry at God because they think that if God loved them, he would make it easy in their life. That if God loved them, their loved one would not die. If God loved them, their spouse would not leave them. If God loved them, they would not lose their job. And, and, and so the logic goes. But the greatest demonstration of God's love is giving his son on the cross to die for our sins. There is no greater gift and God has given it. And people just discard it. They just toss it away like it's garbage and trash. But it is the most precious thing to us. We will know God in in such grander ways when we see him, but we will never experience greater love than what he gave us on the cross in laying down his life for us. There is no greater love. And someone who knows that love then is to exemplify that by living their life out that way. And John moves from this example of Christ to an example of someone who doesn't love like Christ. Verse 17, John moves us to an example. I recall the example of the hateful brother. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So in contrast to the high and exalted example of Jesus' love, how he gave it all, he, he gave his, his life to all, here is this mealy, measly, uh, really pathetic example. Understand what John is saying. It's, it's a good example. I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, criticizing scripture, but I'm saying the contrast couldn't be more drastic. Jesus, who gave it all, it's God's greatest gift, and now is compared to someone who just can't even spare a little bit of the extra that they have. He says, whoever has the world's goods. So by that phrase, John is saying, this person has what is needed to meet the coming need. He has it. He has the world's goods. He doesn't define it specifically. Could be clothes, could be food, could be shelter, whatever. He doesn't define it. He just says that this person has it. They have an abundance. Look how he develops it. And sees his brother in need. So a person with abundance sees someone else, a brother, who is in need. This isn't talking about just like a desire or a want. This is a need. Something they need for their life. Without which they will be either unhealthy or even perhaps die. So a brother with an abundance sees a brother in desperate need and he does what? Closes his heart against him. How pathetic. Here's someone with tremendous amount of resources, at least enough to meet the need and then some. The guy doesn't have to even like, give up his own jacket for the other person, to use a, a concrete example. This guy has a closet full of jackets. Someone comes and is freezing to death. He sees them and decides, no, I, don't, I wear all those jackets. I wear them all occasionally. I, I, I need them all. You know, God will take care of him. And he moves on. He closes his heart against him. The word heart there is actually not the word that we normally associate with the word heart. It's talking about the bowels. Because people thought about the true deep feelings coming from that part of your being. He's saying there's no compassion in this guy. None at all. 
If you have the world's goods, you look at someone who has need, particularly a brother, to keep it in the context, a brother in Christ, or at least a brother in Christ in name only, someone else who would profess Christ, you see a brother who has that need and you don't meet that need. You've closed your heart from him. In other words, you've got no compassion at all. None at all. And John ends this illustration with this, with this rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is, is one that doesn't need an answer. He, he, notice he doesn't answer because the answer is obvious. How does the love of God abide in him? How does the love of God abide in someone who has an abundance to meet a need, sees a need, but doesn't meet it? The answer is obvious. The love of God doesn't abide in someone like this. Doesn't at all. As one commentator explained, to withhold help from a brother in need, to shut off compassionate action, is to deny the presence of God's love in one's own, one own, in one's own heart. Or as another commentator noted, if such a minimal response to the law of charity called for by such an everyday situation is absent, then it is idle to pretend that we are within the family of God in the realm in which love is operative as the principle and the token of eternal life, unquote. James provides us a, a similar warning in James chapter 2, verses 14 and 18. There it says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Understand what James is saying. He's not saying works earn you salvation. What he's saying is those works demonstrate your faith. It's the same thing that John's teaching us in 1 John 3. Your conduct reveals your character. That's always true. Whether we're talking about righteousness or whether we're talking about love. And again, we're not talking about perfected righteousness or perfected love, but love as a pattern. And this is a high love. This is Jesus' agape love. Understand, beloved, that if God gives us an abundance, it, it, it may well be that he hasn't given us that abundance so that we'll go build bigger barns or buy the newer car, or the bigger house, or the newer clothes. Perhaps the reason he has given us abundance is to meet the need of another brother in, who has that need. Paul uh, relays something similar to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 12 to 14. He says, he says there, he says, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has. What he, what he talks about is, when he's talking about giving a gift, he, God never asks us to give a gift we don't have. He doesn't want you to to take out a loan to go help somebody else. That's not what he's calling for at all. He's talking about giving from what you have. In other words, your abundance. He says here, giving not according to what he does not have. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need. So oftentimes, God gives us an abundance so that we could supply the need. The problem so many times with Christians today in our society is that when we, have, when we get more money, we tend to spend more and usually spend it on ourselves, sometimes even going into debt, although we have plenty of money. We're a nation full of debtors. And when we're, when we're so in debt like that, we cannot respond to the needs around us if we're so strapped in debt. But, but the point of this, taking it back to what John is saying, is that if you have uh, the ability to meet a need and you see a brother who has the need and you don't meet it, don't have any assurance of salvation. You don't earn your salvation by doing that, by giving, you know, meeting that need. That's not, that's not at all what John is saying. So don't, don't confound and confuse what he is saying. But what he is saying is if you have the ability to meet a need, don't meet the need, then how does the love of God reside within you? It, it doesn't. It doesn't, beloved. So John moves on from there to look at verse 18. He says, we must not follow this, this hateful example. 
little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So tying together the, the, the positive example of Christ and the negative example of this person who wouldn't even give something out of the abundance that they had, um, John ties those two together and saying, beloved, let's not love in word or tongue. In other words, word or tongue only. Right? It's cheap to say, I love you, brother, or I love you, sister. But do you really? Are you willing to be there for them when it's inconvenient? Are you willing to make sacrifices? And uh, Let's just take money off the table. Let's say it's not even about money. Are you willing to make sacrifice of time? In our culture, sometimes time is more important than money. Are you willing to make a sacrifice of time to spend the time needed to love, to demonstrate love towards one another and towards each other, someone who is in need? Do we take the time to notice those who might be hurting or might need an encouraging phone call or a note uh, written from somebody? There's there's very practical ways in which this is demonstrated. But he's saying, let us not love just just in word, but in deed and truth. Truth, tying it back to to the fact that we need Christ and depend upon Christ for uh, loving this person in an agape sense. Let us not love with tongue or just word, but in deed and truth. And if we will do that, then it'll be very clear where we are at spiritually. And again, there's a certain obligation which we have to love our neighbor, which is every human being around us that we see. And there's this extent at which we're commanded to love our enemy. But John here is dealing with love of the brethren. If, if the love of the brethren is not a character of your life, you should have no assurance of salvation, even if there are other areas of your life that you think are, are okay, that you're okay with God. Those who consistently love the brethren as Jesus has loved them are those who can confidently say they are children of God. And understand, beloved, the children of the evil one are, are too selfish and too self-motivated to love the brethren uh, and to love others at the high standard of Jesus' example. He sets the bar extremely high. So why can, be, we, why can we confidently say that true believers love one another? The first reason is that consistent absence of love for the children of God is just simply impossible for someone who's been uh, who has come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. The second reason is that the children of the devil, uh, children of the evil one, consistently hate the righteousness of the children of God. The third reason is that consistent love for the children of God reveals someone who has eternal life. It shows us to be those who truly love. And of the negative is that, is that uh, a lack of love shows hatred and that you're tied uh, as a, your character is that of a murderer, and uh, which reveals that you're tied to the father, uh, the father of murderers who is Satan or the evil one. The fourth reason is that consistent love for the children of God requires Christ-like sacrifices, which the children of the evil one are unwilling and unable to do. Jesus said that, that in the end times, the love of many will grow cold. We see that today. It's, it's like uh, accelerating. The love of many would grow cold. And the Apostle Paul in, in, second, in second Timothy 3 warns us, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Beloved, we are told to avoid such men, but let us not just stop with the avoidance of those whose love has grown cold. Let us be those who devote ourselves to loving one another, that we would be devoted to brotherly love, helping the world to know that we are truly disciples of Jesus Christ by how we sacrificially Love one another. And again, not in word only, but also in deed and truth. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, what an awesome and majestic love with which you have loved us. Oh, what a deep, deep love.
that you have for us. Not because we're worthy in and of ourselves, but because of your, your desire to love us, to set your affection upon us, to, to, do, what is, to do what is good for us. Not because we had done something for you or could do something for you. Or for you need nothing and you need no one. But you love us and you demonstrate your love by dying for us while we were yet in the darkness, while we were yet enemies. And we just want to thank you for that, Lord God. And I thank you that you have transferred many this morning, Lord, many of those who are here this morning, you've transferred us from the realm of death and darkness into the realm of light, into the realm of love. And Lord, just ask that you would help us to exemplify Christ-like love even more, even more than we have. Lord, cause this kind of love to abound within our church, to abound within our families among those who have been truly converted. And Lord, we also pray that for those And there might be some here this morning, some listening later as they download the message, Lord, that that who realize they don't love the church. They don't love the brethren. That you would bring conviction of sin, that you'd bring humility, that you'd open the eyes of their heart and draw them to saving faith in Jesus Christ that they might experience firsthand the overwhelming and abundant love of God in their lives. And having experienced that, and having been moved into the realm of love, may they go and love likewise, as Christ loved. Help us, Lord God. We cannot do this on our own. Help us to love as you loved us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.